0: The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast
1: in immersive sound design.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Breaking Anonymity, the podcast that talks about not only recovery, but the way to get from addiction to uh, serenity. My name is MC Search.
1: And I'm Kyle Eustis.
0: And uh, we'd love to have guests who come on the show with recovery and stories that talk about not only uh, their highs and their lows, but actually, you know, what uh, they did to find recovery. We uh, would love for you to kind of listen to this podcast, learn something about addiction, and then most importantly, maybe help somebody get into a program so that they can find a better way of life. Kyle, can you please introduce one of my favorite MCs of all time from one of my favorite crews of all time?
1: Oh, absolutely. I couldn't be more excited. Everybody, we have the one and only a plus today of the mighty hieroglyphics crew as the co-founder of souls of mischief he produced perhaps one of the most recognized songs in hip-hop history 93 till infinity which i still bump to this day more recently (laughs) he dropped four albums last year with his new group a plus and the architect and is presumably looking forward to rocking stages again as this pandemic gets behind us Everybody, A-plus!
2: Yes, yes, yes. Hey, 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 what's up, y'all? What's up? Um, It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you for having me here. Um, I'm um, A-plus. I'm an alcoholic addict, and um, I'm uh, in recovery. And I'm, uh, again, very honored to be here with you guys. I was born from uh, Jamaican immigrant parents. that came here. uh, They moved to New York uh, from Jamaica back in the late 60s. My sister, they had my sister in... um, in Brooklyn in 1970. Uh, They started traveling out west because my dad wanted to be near water and sun. And they had me on the way in in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Moved to Oakland when I was one. Uh, From there we bounced around from different places. Um, Denver again when I was five and that's when my parents split up. I went back to California to Oakland with my father and my sister, and have been there ever since. That's where I ended up meeting uh, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien, and Tajay and Casual. I met them all in first grade, and that was kind of the beginning of the journey with Hieroglyphics. Got into hip hop very early. First song, you know, anybody not in New York ever heard was Rappers Delight. I'm no, I'm no different. Got, a, got hooked immediately by the time I heard the message. 1982, I was eight, I was in second grade. I decided I wanted to be an MC. That was it. And it was kind of like a weird thing back then. You sounded crazy as hell. People thought, you you know, you're just out of your mind. And it was a joke at first. And then when I was still wanted to be an MC when in junior high school and all of that, and was still B-boying and hip hop, and it was people were like, are you wasting your life away, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we ended up getting record deals in um, yeah, high school, 12th grade. Largely because of uh Dell just who was my best friend, <clears throat> just happened to be Ice Cube's cousin. And Ice Cube got Del a deal and um, and then Dell helped facilitate us getting getting our name out there by putting on putting us on the B side of his second single off his first album, Mr. Dobelina. Mr. Dobelina, Mr. Bob, Dabalina, Mr. Bob, Dabolina, want to quit. You really make me sick with your fraudulent behavior. You wanna make me flip and then a couldn't save you. And from there, we started getting uh, the offers from different people, and uh, it just kind of took off from there. We ended up signing with Drive Records, put out the, put out our first album, Ninety Three Till Infinity in Ninety Three. And um, you know, the industry change had a big change at the time, and what. You know, the business side and what what they found out was more profitable as far as uh, hip hop culture and marketing it. It gravitated more towards like the more uh, street stuff and um, and, you know, pop music, basically. Um, I'm, I'm not saying this clowning. I'm saying this is what happened. But yeah. Acts like us weren't as profitable. So we ended up leaving the label after two albums and subsequently got all together and started forming a record label in 96. The Hieroglyphics uh, label, Hieroglyphics Imperium label. In between that time, we were kind of like really on the cutting edge with the internet. We were like really one of the first groups ever with an internet site selling our merchandise, pre-Napster, pre-Itunes, pre-all of that. And that's kind of how we were able to launch our independent label, by having some way to contact the fans that we had accumulated through the major label marketing and being able to link onto them and still get our music to them. And then we put out our first album with the label in 1998, put out our next one, I believe it was 2003. And this is these are hieroglyphics albums. And Souls of Mischief went on to create more records that same way. Casual as well, the whole crew. And we've been doing that ever since, you know, bought some property, you know. But this is, again, before file sharing uh, hard copies were making a lot of money and we were able to make a lot of money, more money than we made on on the labels just because we were getting a a better cut. You know, they, they put up the labels, put up the money, they get the big cut. That's how it goes. And since we were putting up the money and getting directly at the audience, we were able to make some money, we bought some property. Bought, bought our compound and um kept our merchandising business going and and touring and being face to face with our fans and um yeah so that's the whole musical story now, as far as as it pertains to, drinking I started drinking man like I had my first drink probably like around twelve the household I lived in was kind of a party household it's my dad my stepmom my stepbrother step my sister and um. Yeah, I was a mama's boy and I was taken away from my mom. She lived in in Denver, so I would go see her in the summers. And you know, I was growing up in Oakland. It was just kind of a rougher place to live. Even for the nicest of kids, you don't have to be all involved in a bunch of uh, street madness to be in the streets and be affected by it. And and that's what it's like growing up in Oakland. You like, you, you are in the streets if you're out here. You know, the only way you're not in the streets if you're out here is if you're rich and you live way up on the hill. It's the only way you're not involved somehow. You know, that was around us all the time. And hip hop was kind of how we navigated through that without getting into any messes like a lot of our friends did that are like, you know, a lot of them gone, a lot of them locked down, which is gone in a way. You know, a lot of lives ruined, but we were able to navigate that. Throughout that time, I always had a thing with social anxiety my whole life and yeah i'm a very which is odd because i'm a very much a people person and not to toot my own horn but like likable you know pleasant personality positive dude you know and i got a lot of friends always have had um i was a smaller dude so i always had you know big street dudes making sure it was nothing wrong nothing going wrong with me and so yeah you know i would uh when i've had my first drink i realized that you know i i I didn't feel as anxious you know it's kind of just masked the anxiety and, you know, and that was like, you know, few and far in between. But as, as high school started to happen, I didn't even drink a whole lot in high school, you know, just partying here and there like kids do. But when we started getting into the music business and traveling and, and doing these shows and all that stuff, I would just find myself making sure I had a beer or two before I hit the stage, just so my body would stop shaking on the inside. You know, a person with social anxiety, taking this job is kind of nutty, right? This is a job where you have to be in the public, I mean, all the way in it. And I'm such a fan of hip-hop that when I'm out there them shows, like, I'm a fan, too. Like, I, I go watch the openers. I'm out there in the crowd. I've been known to be that way my whole career. Like, you know, the fans like, oh, A-plus is out here. I'm, you know, um, I'm out there in the crowd. Like, you know, I, I just... I got lucky enough to get on stage, but I'm more so of a fan. I'm out here with y'all, you know? So, you know, that entailed a lot of drinking, a lot of smoking, and it was fun. So it was never really a problem, or it didn't it seem to not be a problem, right? But as life went on a little bit, it just went hand in hand with going out. Like when I'm at home and chilling and stuff, I wasn't a drink everyday person. And if I go out socially, I can have two beers, you know what I'm saying, and be cool. But when it comes to that social, that being in that crowd and being, having to talk to everybody that passes you and everything, I just found it more comfortable to have a drink or two. So that continued to shorten it a little bit. That's an unsustainable thing uh, because, you know, you get older and hip hop, although it's my passion, it became very much a job and a vocation and it got way more involved on the business side, just doing business with your friends and stuff. But later on in life, you know, it just got to be like real stressful and a lot of the fun got taken out of it. It wasn't just me either. Like most of us were all drinking and smoking, you know, and doing all of this. The way I dealt with anxiety was a drink, basically instead of meds, (laughs) you know, it was just how I did it and it worked. And then as you get older and if you don't find legitimate ways to deal with that anxiety and stuff, again unsustainable comes to mind again i saw the frequency in really having to drink i didn't have any other tools on how to deal with the anxiety Now i'm like 30 something early 40s and life is changing you're not that 20 year old dude you're not that 30 year old dude and i had a kid when i was 27. he's great now he's in college you know just life starts hitting you and and the drinking starts affecting me more And then personal problems, like things going wrong with the business, things going wrong with close people and stuff. And Like hip hop was my escape, right? And it was like, life was hard growing up for me, but hip hop made it all cool, so I didn't complain about that shit. When the shit started going bad with hip hop and the people I do business with in hip hop, I almost felt like a kid on how to deal with it. You know, I just didn't have any other way to, I didn't have any other tools to deal with it because it had been my safe place. And I no longer felt like it was safe uh, Just the business environment of hip-hop had become, like, toxic. And I was like, I'm not letting this go because this is my shit. Most times I would back down, but for this, this was, like, all I had, so I'm going to fight to the death for it. And this is with my people and all of that stuff. When episodes happen in that environment, they got worse, and it affected everybody, and not just me. There's other people as well, you know, but I'm only talking about myself and taking responsibility for myself. Shit was like really going bad as far as personal relationships within the crew. It got to a point where me not having the tools to deal with it, I dealt with it like, well, fuck that shit. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not back down on you, you, when you wrong, you wrong. And and it, again, I just didn't have no other way to deal with it. So right before COVID happened, I had decided that like I still want hip hop to be fun for me. I'ma figure out something. Right when I started to get at that point, then COVID hit. I got COVID in fucking friggin' uh february before it was a thing you know cause it was out there before they was talking about it on the news and me my girl my family a bunch of us all got deadly ass sick in february i was in the middle of recording that uh one an, an album the first album with architect i'll get to that later and uh shit just shut down and when the shit shut down i just really started drinking you know what i'm saying like more than i ever had because i i lived alone couldn't see my mother who, who you know later on she, she moved she ended up she moved to new york for 14 years and i used to go out there every you know every summer and all the time so I, people see me in new york a lot and then she ended up moving back here so that was cool but when covid happened i was just like completely isolated from everybody from my my son my my, my lady my my dad my sister my little brother uh you know it's everybody and um i just didn't handle it well so i drank a lot so this is the turning point for me i had a friend a homegirl I used to drink with, smoke weed with. Yeah, I, I was really light on the drugs, but I did some drugs with her too. I'm not leaving that out, but alcohol was really my problem. But uh, drugs in there certainly, <laughs> it's the opposite of helping that, you know? <clears throat> yeah, one day she was here and I, you know, I was like a lean on a shoulder friend for that person. We would drink and she would like always get irate and leave. And I was like, well, that's regular because I'm trying to help her through that. You know, just, again, a literal friend of mine, no fucking around or nothing. And one day she was at my house, mad belligerent. I was trying to get her to leave. She pushed me like mad lightly. And I pushed her mad lightly back because I'm not a light, a, a violent person, but it was mad lightly it was a knee jerk reaction. And she fell down some steps and it was bad. I really saw her and my life flash right before my eyes. And that was the moment when I was like, yo, fuck this shit, yo. This was 100% an accident. But that doesn't take away the fact that people die from accidents all the time. Let me add, too, like, during COVID, when I would get lit, I would get on live and air my fucking grievances. You know what I'm saying? I'd be like, you know, and one thing about, like, uh, not drinking is that I still have the same grievances. I just have better ways to deal with them. But when you when I was drinking, the way I did was like, man, when you wrong, you wrong. I, I'm known to be a person of my word, and, and a lot of people trust me. And so I would just like, without any other real way to 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 feel better about shit, I would air out shit that I thought was wrong. That was all around that same time. So when that accident happened with the with my friend, that's when I decided that I wanted to not drink anymore. What I needed to do was find a different way to deal with my anxiety and and depression and shit. That was a real issue for me and drinking was the way I dealt with it and that's why my drinking was so bad. I wasn't known as a drunk motherfucker like that's fucking shit up. You know what I'm saying? I'm known as A plus, everybody loved me but when those times happened, those were the absolute worst times of my life and the worst I acted. And fortunately, you know, I had an- enough people who knew me and loved me to know my, my my true character. You know what I'm saying? But when it got to the point to where like, you know, again, the words unsustainable and shit like near death experiences start happening I figured I had to do something so at this point I took it upon myself I was like man I, I called my mother and I was like mom help me find some meetings yeah I don't know I want to go to some meetings but help me find some and it's COVID everything's locked down so she hit me back 10 minutes later gave me a list of meetings uh zoom meetings and I hit three my first night and I just knew that's where I was supposed to be I made a post about it like yo man I just hit three meetings and somebody that I know in my life just from around the way that follows me was like yo man like I've been in recovery for the past so-and-so. Check out these meetings I go to is a, a meeting for every day of the week. And he said you should do your 90 and 90, which for people out there who don't know, that's like 90 meetings and 90 days when you're starting to roll to recovery. And so yeah, that's that's what it was. And um, I guess right now, let me look. I have to look at my app to see exactly how many days I got because I'm still fresh in the game. Uh so today would be one day 163. And uh, so I did, thank you, sir. Thank you. And I did my, um, I did my 90 and 90. Um, uh, One of the main things about the meetings that just drew me in from that first night, my first meeting, I got on there and I was like, well, I was already drunk when I called my mom and I was like sad, you know? And I was like, my, whatever. So I went to, I went to that first meeting and the very first meeting, I just found myself like bawling my eyes out, man, at, uh, at, at what the, uh, some of these other people's experiences and how just similar and just, uh, how similar they were, um, regardless of how different I am than these people here and how different they are from each other in this room. It just really hit home. And I heard a lot, a lot of stories. And that's what I got from the meetings every night, just hearing all these different versions of recovery in the process. Yeah, I just kind of got hooked on it, man. And um, it's a one day at a time. I, I know that um, there's no pompous nature about the shit like oh, I did that. This, nah, this is a lifetime thing. But I am in my mind, in my body, and my heart, in my soul, I'm not ever going to pick up a drink again. I have seriously no reason to at all. I don't care if other people do, if they drink responsibly. I'm not going to be a thumper for anybody else. Like I, I can I, I hang around my homies who drink now. I go out with people and casually they drink. I'm fine. I don't want anybody to curb their behavior because of me and my presence. And I, I like where I'm at. I like where I'm going. And I, I still have more to do. And we shall continue. And and also, I know it's anonymous, and we could talk about it later. But it's crazy, uh, Serge. You per- definitely <laughs> know my sponsor, and 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 you probably you could probably think of think of who that could be, um, without us having to say anything on the air. So uh, yeah, man. Uh, God is the greatest. I feel blessed. I'm finding tools to do the real issue. Wasn't drinking drinking was the symptom of some issues by not drinking. I've allowed myself and with the help of the fellowship and supporting people in my life, I found tools to deal with the actual issues without having to drink to deal with them because that's not a good way to deal with it. Um, if, if, if it's not fixing the problems, it's just a bandaid on a bullet wound till you ultimately bleed out. So, um, it, it's, it's crazy. It's still it's still like a journey. My first show since not only since uh, lockdown, but since uh, not drinking is Tomorrow Night. Wow. So, yeah. My very first one. I'm opening up from one of my favorites, Crazy Bone. Uh, that said, yo, I'm I'm getting back out into the world. I'm doing my first show and I, I'm enjoying, you know, I, I still have all the same feelings about shit. I still have the same grievances, but there's a better way to do it than the way I was doing it, you know. Yeah, right now.
1: I, I, I wanted to ask you about live shows, actually, um, that you bring it up because, you know, I've been around a lot of artists in my day as well. And, you know, every time they walk through a crowd or even if they're up on stage, people are constantly throwing drugs at them or offering them drinks. And does that pose any kind of concern for you? Like now that you're going to go back out?
2: Um, I don't think so. I, I'm not going to be pompous and say that like, nah, I got it. I'm like a bull. I'm an Aries. I'm like a stubborn cat. I'm like, yeah, I really am. Once I decide to do something, I really like I go all out to to get it. I mean, uh, you know, uh, of course, if it's above board, it's a trip. You know, uh, when I actually have that feeling that like this is it, this is what I need to do. I just have like an autopilot go mode. And that's how I feel about not drinking. I just I know it's a process to, to prove to myself not to do it, but I am wholly dedicated to not doing it. Anymore, and that that stubbornness in me is going to be like, nah, I'm cool. You got it. That's you. You could you you could you could you could smoke that. You you could drink that. You could sniff that. That's you. I'm good. Thank you. I still have to do the steps. I still have to go to the meetings. I still have to rock with the fellowship. I still have to pay it forward. Um, that that's that's a lifetime thing, which doesn't seem it's not a chore to me because the fellowship, it, it it's a blessing, you know. So so being helpful and, and and a part of it is not a chore, you know.
1: Mm hmm. (laughs) I see search sitting over there ruminating. I know he has something to say.
0: (laughs) No, I I, I just, you know, my my thing was um, early on, I was told uh, in my first 90 days that for me to stay clean, I had to stay away from people, places and things. Mm. And my experience was that I didn't think that was going to be possible because. The people and places and things that I was around were the people and places and things that I made a living uh, around. Yeah. So um, my, you know, for me that was a huge challenge. And what happened was, when I eliminated the people and places and things, I lost everything. You know, I lost the house, I lost my savings, I lost everything that I'd worked so hard for, because. I knew that if I surrounded myself with those same people, I would go back to using. And if I went back to using the things that I was really important in my life, my family, um, those were the things that I would lose. Um, and it was tough. It was, for me, it was really tough to wrap my head around the fact that, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I'm staying clean. I'm going to meetings. I'm working steps. I'm being of service, but I can't make a living. I'm I'm losing everything, like I'm losing everything. Like I had to sell my house, not once but twice. Like I I, I couldn't, you know. Um, but the one thing I didn't lose in that ten years was my recovery. And through working a program, through the process of trusting the program and trusting the fellowship, I was able to then surround myself with those same people that I was able to build everything up again um, and, and kind of get everything back. And I say that as you are a newcomer, you know one of the things I learned is, you know, you're the most important person at any meeting because we only get to keep what we have by giving it away. And with you having 160 some odd days, 166 days during this podcast today, You know, the idea of you going back out on the road, the idea of you going back into areas where you're gonna see people, places and things, you might not have the urge or the desire, but that sense of loss, uh, if you keep that in front of you at all times and you think about the idea that if I go back to using, What I lose is my health, what I lose is my family. What I lose is the potential to do the thing that I love to do. Um, You know, one of the things you hear all the time in the rooms is anything you put in front of your recovery, you lose and understand that like there are going to be things that you're going to experience because of what you do that are going to create euphoria, that are going to create a sense of excitement. And you're going to think, oh, I got this. So I can have a little bit of blank and I can have a little bit of this. And I can just share with you because I'm hearing things that I've heard from people that have 166, 200 days a year, two years, and then they go back out and they never come back. And I want him to, to, to get to five years and 10 years. So I'm just sharing my experience, strength, and hope. I, I, just thankful. be mindful, because you're going back out. Be mindful that the mm-hmm. best thing you can do for your recovery is put that in front of everything that you do.
2: Thank you. I I, I appreciate it. Yes, it does scare me, but but I need that. I, I'm glad you said that. Um, it's weird. Uh, you know, I have never been to an uh, an in-person meeting. Right. I I came in what they called the a Zoom era. Um in, right. um, in in the rooms. And um, so as crazy and as horrible as this pandemic is, to, to extract some good out of it, it allowed me the space to isolate myself from a lot of these people that I shouldn't be around, a lot of these situations I shouldn't be around. A lot of people were not good for me and, and not good for, for my sobriety And because um, and I was already in isolation. So going out to these shows, I have my, I have my little big brother, Tukey, with me. I'm taking him with me everywhere. And, and he is not going to, he's not going to, he was not having any kind of usage at all. And um, Good. And, that, and when I a, see
1: you in Colorado, because you know, I will,
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to oh, oh, keep yeah. an eye on you. <laughs> absolutely. 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 So, um, and, and, you know, I know it's like uh, with my limited experience in the rooms, I, I, you know, I see people like relapse and come back in and I've seen people fuck off seven years and, and, and however many years and then it's scary you know, because they're on it. So you, your point is exact, you know, like learn from these people. And, and yeah. uh, you know, I know I'm fresh in the game, man. And, and I'm dedicated to a lifetime of this. In my mind, in my heart, I am. Now it's just about the day by day.
0: We ask everybody this, and I think it's really interesting. And I, I'd love to ask you this now and then ask you when you got three and five years clean, you know, we we ask people if they are going through, you know, this process and they um are concerned about, you know, going to a meeting or they think it's a cult or they think, you know, it's not for them and they can do it on their own. You know, what do you say to the people that are listening to this now who are on the fence about going to a program?
2: What happened with me is that, you know, we all have different hangups about stuff and, and, and some of the steps and stuff, and it's gonna be different for everybody. What really locked me in is seeing the people in the fellowship is the proof that it works
0: thank you so much a plus and um thank you for sharing your experience strength and hope with us for mc search and uh my partner here
1: kyle eustis the one and only
0: yes this is (laughs) the breaking anonymity podcast and again please if you feel like you need help you probably do find some and find some serenity Check out new episodes of Breaking Anonymity every Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends and subscribe. The Breaking Anonymity Podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Brett EpicMazer, Kyle Eustis, and Michael Barron. Produced by Kyle Eustace and Michael Barron. Sound design by Brett EpicMazer and Nick DeVila. Breaking Anonymity logo created by Paul Luke's. Sound effect voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka. If you are battling with addiction or know someone who is, please call the National Addiction Helpline. 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. You do not have to battle addiction alone.